a lot of the advice that I give when I have the opportunity to speak to students is whatever passion you have, find the digital component for it because that's where you'll find opportunity and employment. Welcome to Cross Pollination, a show about doing things differently. We're a member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. Just in time for Christmas and with a tale to make even Scrooge hang up a Christmas stocking, Helen Weatherly Knight tells us about unique tech projects that fearlessly bridge the gaps between the nonprofit, corporate, and academic worlds. Helen, an efficiency maximizer who carries all the grocery bags at once, has been most recently director of IT at the Calgary Drop-In and Rehab Center, a shelter and resource center for people experiencing homelessness. Helen tells us about her journey from IT in the corporate world to solving challenges in the nonprofit sector with innovative collaborations, electronic kiosks, and some solid fundamentals. She tells us why IT goes way further than the help desk and why tech, business, strategy, and revenues all need to cross-pollinate. Helen is a finalist for Canadian CIO of the Year and winner of Women in IT's Transformation Leader of the Year Award. It all started for her with a little code and a computer with some familiar music. When I was nine years old, I was lucky to have uh, ample access to technology from a very early age. So I was a nerd right off the bat and uh, worked with so many different kinds. I was I remember having robots, even though they didn't do much more than spin around. It was really exciting. I remember using an Apple II when I was very young, and I remember the floppy disks were really big. I, I, I don't understand now. I must have been really small. But I wrote a program that just moved the cursor across the, the screen, and that was exciting. And then I wrote another pro. I don't even think we had mice at the time. There was nowhere to go, so there was no reason to have a mouse. I wrote a program that moved the cursor across the screen and left a hash and eventually created a house. I, Pong came out. Uh, I, I got a Commodore 64 with the 264 colors. It made that amazing Christmas commercial and I didn't stop begging for it. So just um, it, it was the wave of the future and I was lucky to have access. Helen's love for all things tech lasted into high school until she hit a snag. She came back to it later, and what really got her interested in tech was seeing how it can make things more efficient and effective. I stuck with technology until I was 15, when I was told in no uncertain terms that it was for boys and not for something that I should be looking into at all. So I backed away from it, unfortunately, and I stayed out of IT for about five years until I realized that I shouldn't have let anybody stop me from doing what I really loved. So I went to school, I did my uh, A+, plus. I did my Microsoft certifications in solution engineering, uh, system design, database analysis, I got a diploma in business information systems, eventually I got a bachelor's degree, I did my MBA in IT strategy, I uh, went to Stanford for some advanced project management course. I did project management certification. I did my pro-side change management certification through this journey. I think in IT, you've got to stay in school forever. My first IT job, I was on the help desk, though, and I loved it. It's not technology for technology's sake. It's, you know, um, what can you do more efficiently and effectively? I'm definitely the person who carries all the grocery bags at the same time, even if, uh, <laughs> even if it hurts. So I'm interested in how can I do things better, faster, uh, and technology is absolutely the tool that can deliver that. 
Helen's IT career took her through a variety of roles and projects in the corporate world. Her focus on efficiency, meanwhile, came in handy when she eventually moved to the nonprofit sector, where a little efficiency can go a long way to saving organizations big money and just doing what they do better when their IT systems are in good shape and aligned with their strategies. I was lucky that uh, when I was in corporate, my organization supported me volunteering. A lot of large corporations have great volunteering programs. I would take so much advantage of it. They would pay you to um, work regular hours, but you'd be able to go to a nonprofit and clean out a pantry or or do some organization. And so once a month, I would go over to the Calgary Drop-In Center and serve a lunch. It felt great. It was a lovely hour. I'd go back to work feeling good about myself. I did that for three years before they started asking, uh, before they posted for the director of IT position. And I really wish in retrospect now that I had had a conduit to volunteer the skills that I have beyond that surface level of serving the meals once I saw the opportunities. And I've been working on how do we get more corporate experts to participate with their area of expertise in a nonprofit, not just sweeping, cleaning, and serving. I think that's that's a huge piece. So I was already really familiar with the Calgary Drop-In Center and their, their critical role uh, well before I took on the role. But um, I was lucky that I had that volunteer experience because in a nonprofit, nonprofit experience is very, very important. So at the Drop-In Center, Helen was confronted with big challenges in an organization whose work has a significant impact, but not necessarily the kind of resources she might have had in the private sector. So what to do? She looked at them as opportunities and began to find ways to address them in a way that strengthened not just the nonprofit's ability to do its work, but the fabric of the city. I wasn't aware of how much um, opportunity. Definitely in my first interview, I think I heard for an hour and a half about how many things were a challenge. Um, and then when I began the role, it turned out that that had been an underestimate, underestimate of how much opportunity there was for improvement. But that's really exciting. I mean, it's a dream to walk into an organization where you can make immediate concrete improvements every day. There were some shocking technical challenges, but I think I see that across the board in so many nonprofits. They're focused on their output very, very reasonably. There's not uh, a lot of time or money to focus on that efficient operations. It's entirely, their, their mission is driven so importantly. But what I would really like to see is any IT experts that happen to be listening right now to participate in a nonprofit board so that we can advocate for the investment in technology because it will increase that output. IT needs at the drop-in center is where the collaborations began to come in. I was really lucky. I phoned the SATE, the Southern Alberta Institute of Technology, and begged them for some students to help me out on day two. They sent me eight and we just went stem to stern trying to identify all of the opportunities and gaps. And now, three and a half years in, I've had over 70 students from five different schools doing what are unpaid practicums, but in immense value for me and pretty good value for them as well because they touch such uh, broad systems and participate so regularly in delivering value for the city. The state students weren't the only ones to be recruited. 
I was lucky to get uh, volunteers from corporate Calgary who came together and helped me with change management and project management and all those roles that aren't normally you don't have the funding for in a nonprofit. And now we're evolving to the point where they're able to start net new projects. We were gifted a learning management system, Absorb, and the students were able to study it, learn it. They, they hadn't had any training in their education, but they were able to investigate, bring it live, turn it into single sign-on, and, and deliver this, this system. So every one of them, I believe, has had a great, broad exposure to different kinds of technology, um, but it's been a, an evolution. I bet the first students are probably more jealous of the, what the students have done three and a half years later. I think that within the nonprofit, one of the greatest benefits was that people are willing to work for you for free. It doesn't mean that I'm um, completely reliant on that, but just when the you have that opportunity to bring together students and volunteers and the best of the students, I've found a way to hire and promote. And so now I have this group of people that I've been working with for three and a half years who have come to uh, develop so strongly that I'm honestly not needed anymore. And we're able to continually get new students in under people who used to be students themselves, graduating from the same programs. Also, I'm benefiting from women in technology that have maybe been on a maternity leave and been home for too long. They're coming and volunteering with me on whatever hours they can work out and delivering great value, but also refreshing their confidence about, oh yeah, I do remember IT. I didn't, I didn't forget it all. And oh, this is something new, but I can learn it comfortably because um, giving a way for women to return to the workforce in technology when it moves so quickly, I think that that volunteer and partnership is a really big piece of it. On the topic of people-focused organizations, ATB is on a mission to transform banking by making it work for people. They do this by innovating at the forefront of robotics, AI, blockchain, and by leveraging out-of-the-box thinkers like the guests and listeners of this podcast. Visit atbalphabeta.com to learn more about accelerating your career in tech. The students and experienced volunteers formed a unique mix of collaborators to solve a problem under constraints, a classic situation to develop innovative solutions. But what about the basics? That, Helen says, is where things need to start before all the cool new stuff can come into play. Her own starting point at the help desk is a good example of where everyday problem-solving rubber meets the road. I think the very first thing is not reaching for innovation. You need to ace the basics first. You need to build trust and deliver value. You can't reach for innovation if somebody's keyboard doesn't work or, you know, their, their monitor keeps flicking. You really need to meet their basic needs uh, as an IT department before you can even start selling some really crazy out there ideas. So innovation is um, a responsibility that you are only gifted with the ability to drive once you have the trust of proving that you can make people's pain go away because innovation can be pain if it's applied incorrectly. So innovation to me, once I've developed that trust and brought things to a level of stability and standard that um, they're willing to jump with me into, into new tools has unlimited applications. The first thing that I try to do 
once I've brought up that standard, though, is usually around revenue. So um, before you start doing really, really exciting things, you want to find out, well, how can we be more efficient with revenue? How can we increase revenue? How can we support the people that um, get revenue to multiply it in any way through technology? Because that also gives you more runway to focus on really exciting innovation after the fact. The other side I think we're losing when we outsource help desks is those those really tough questions. Once I got a call, this is like 25 years ago, but I still remember it. I got a phone call that the light on top of an airplane tower was out, the light bulb. And I don't do light bulbs. That's not my gig. But uh, I remember having to search to find who can change out this light bulb. And I think back to uh, an outsourced environment. It doesn't fit in a bucket. Does that ticket just get closed out? If, if you can be very successful with an outsourced help desk, but you really need a conduit for all of those questions that don't fit neatly. And you can't just reward that outsourced agency for closing everything off on a certain speed and time of service level agreements. There needs to be a way that you can actually hear from your constituents, your end users about what needs to be done. I think that the math about outsourcing help desks was done to, at too low a level. I think it was how much does a help desk cost and how much does it cost if we're going to do it overseas. What we're missing is the math about the end users and how long they might be delayed and not getting the help that they need. And that pipeline of that STEM talent that you're no longer able to, to build up. So on this podcast, we've heard a lot about good design and getting feedback from the people who use a service or a product. And the help desk provides a lot of that useful feedback. So does the way that clients interact with an innovative new service. As Helen tells us, sometimes injecting a little tech into a very human-centered model can lead to better engagement with clients it's designed to serve. One of the most exciting innovation pieces that came out of the work with the Calgary Drop-In Centre was the self-serve kiosk. So um, it, normalizing the kiosk, building out the, the problems for that so that I had to figure out um, it, w- the cost-benefit analysis of do I try to get a McDonald's touchscreen order sort of screen or can I do that less expensively? The clients through our woodshop program were able to build these self-serve kiosk cases where I can just slip in a touchscreen monitor and easily replace it if there's any sort of problems or challenges with it. And the clients are able to watch a video on uh, data sharing and what and what it means because it's pretty intimidating when you walk in and someone says, uh, you know, I'm going to be entering your information into a database. It, it's highly secure. It's specific to certain roles. But this video just walks the client through why we record that information and how anonymously it's really important to record for advocacy purposes and identify where our gaps are in our programming and if our theory of change, how effective it is. The other thing that is on these self-serve kiosks at the moment is a survey. Uh, It's called um, PAQ that asks basic questions that uh, social workers will ask when they're sitting down with a client uh, and a lot of these are, are known questions. You know, what are some of your barriers to housing and how can we help you get through them? So after the you know, funding and income sort of questions, there's things like, are you comfortable dealing with an authority figure to go and look at a, at a home? Are you, um, perhaps, do you want us to support you when you go and view a basement suite? Because you're not, you've perhaps been a victim of crime. You don't want to go and look at this basement suite with a stranger. These are, these are traditional social worker questions 
that are so important to have that relationship with. But there's been one unexpected advantage with the self-serve kiosks. There's a, a portion of people that are answering differently on that survey to the kiosk. So it's like um, nerds like me uh, would are more comfortable with that asynchronous technology connection. So I'm, it's not diminishing any of the relationships, but it's a new doorway to build relationships with clients that if they may not feel that comfortable, they can tell a computer, these are the levels of my barriers and these are the things that I'm looking for help with. So we are finding a small subset of people that are being served in a new way through that kiosk. And that I think is really innovative and exciting. So as we know by now, innovation is about solving problems and creating value for organizations. What about the inevitable risks? What happens in nonprofits with constrained resources when innovating and trying something new can involve some risk, some possibility that the new thing doesn't work the way you hope it will, and you might need to try again a little differently? Well, Helen's been there too. The expectation of what technology can deliver is a lot higher in corporations. They're like, I want this to work. I want it now. I don't have the the time for for IT to deliver this. If you don't, then I'm going to use my corporate card and go and buy some cloud-based tool that's going to solve it differently. And that's luckily a constraint that we, we don't have. I remember rolling out Office 365. 200 people actually didn't have email when I got to the Calgary Drop-In Center. And I thought, well, I'll just send out these links to their personal email and send these videos to Microsoft, uh, you know, of how to use the technology and the problem solved. Completely wrong. I needed to adjust my approach and bring social workers who are so warm and present and human focused. I needed to bring them into a room with somebody that they trusted so that they could be shown the journey of the technology in a way that fit their learning style so I was really naive about meeting my own learning style of, you know, don't talk to me. Here's an email. Here's a link. Here's the uh, way, you know, to, to self-serve. And it, it was a total failure. So um, I learned to adjust everything that I was doing to make sure that that face-to-face community collaboration was the the focal point and that the training was really warm. That was an important part of it. So, um, but by that I had more leverage, even though I'm highly aware of every penny that is spent and it's very important to be focused on that. Um, there was just so little faith in technology that uh, a little bit of a delay was taken in such stride. They deal with so much crisis and an emergency with a very robust process structure, but there are people that are in um, very real and perilous situations that they're supporting. So they're honestly a lot calmer when the technology fails them because it's nothing compared to the human that they're helping. So that's how creative innovation worked at the drop-in center. And clearly, Tax applications aren't just for nerds. What should non-technologists know about technology? And technologists about other areas? What about women in tech? Or the next generation? Pardon us for feeling just a little bit pleased, but there's a lot of cross-pollination in what all of them can do.
A lot of the advice that I give when I have the opportunity to speak to students is whatever passion you have, find the digital component for it because that's where you'll find opportunity and employment. So if you want to be, uh, let's say, pursue veterinary medicine, but for some reason you your marks or the competition is too great, well then see how you can combine veterinary medicine and technology. You can absolutely have access to things that you're passionate about but be fully gainfully employed at the same time. I think technology is giving all of us an opportunity to find um, meaningful work by applying digitization to the things we already love. I'm seeing um, a lot more people understanding that they're not technologists when they get once they get to a certain point, they're business people. I've seen a lot more focus with organizational change management as well. I have a lot of faith in the next generation as well. My daughter, I remember, uh, she had way more access to technology than, than I have, um, and, and so has my son. But I remember seeing my daughter trying to stretch an image in a book uh, when she was about two years old as though she expected it to expand like a, a, a tablet would. And I remember her. she brought me a teddy bear and said, Mom, can you turn this on? I was like, no, it's, it's doing its thing. This is it. There is no on. But it's just an expected thing in the new generation. And I'm really excited about um, those digital native personality of technology should do this and will do this. And how can I extend it? So I don't see a significant gender imbalance 20 years from now. But we have such a problem leading up to that. I would also know that it's a North American problem. It's, it's, it's a Western culture problem. In Eastern cultures, I think that we allow, uh, we expect women to know math just as well as a, as a man. There's a, there's a great focus on math in Eastern cultures. And in Western cultures, I don't know why this happens, but we forgive women for not being good at it. It's just like, if you're pretty enough, you don't need to learn math, that's fine. Or or we think it's reasonable. It's so depressing and completely wrong. We're um, we're equal. They're, the brain scans show there's no difference between a man or a woman as they're solving math problems. But um, in North America, because we diminish our expectations of women when they're learning math, I think that that's one of the compounding features that prevents people, women from going into technology long term. The second piece is IT has a marketing problem. We have a terrible marketing problem. We uh, don't talk about how many amazing, lucrative, exciting careers there are out there. And uh, that anything that you're passionate about, as we were saying earlier, can be turned into something that makes you a lot of money and is really rewarding and very meaningful. Young people think about careers in IT. They imagine the uh, cheesy-eating, hoodie-wearing basement dweller or a programmer personality, and that's just such a very small part of technology. They also imagine, you know, the person maybe in early careers or, or parents that aren't into technology, IT is the person who comes and replaces my monitor and my keyboard, not understanding how amazing and challenging and exciting the building and maintaining an ecosystem is on on the back end so i want to work more with counselors in high school and give parents who are non-technical better ways to advocate to their children men uh, boys and girls about how and why an it career is so important there i remember when i was looking for a career and taking some tests in high school during my break from it I was told that I would be um, a terrible accountant, but a good lawyer and a very good language translator. 
I've only ever learned one language, English, but I now speak the difference, the different languages of business and technology. And that translation skill is really what I do today. But I wish that my uh, career counselor had been more informed about how to interpret that task for a digital age. IT's marketing challenges are no stranger to this show, and if you'd like to hear about what changed that perception for a group of high school girls, you can listen to episode 21, Taking Over with Code with Team Zeal and the Technovation Competition. Shifted gears, I asked Helen what's next for her in the IT and nonprofit worlds now that the drop-in center work is well up and running. Never short of ideas, she's moving entrepreneurially to expand her work to nonprofits across Canada. She talks here about how they can benefit from a smart tech setup. The digital transformation of the Calgary Drop-In Centre has been incredibly rewarding, but the level of expertise that has been developed into that IT department, and um, it, it's such that I'm, I'm no longer necessary, but I do see a lot of gaps in nonprofits, so I'm very excited to be working with other organizations now to try to bring their technical, other nonprofits to bridge their technical gaps in, in a better way. When you're a nonprofit and you're mission driven, you're so focused on doing that very, very important work with very limited resources. It's totally reasonable that you haven't been able to invest in technology. It's a real challenge when people are saying, you know, innovate, innovate, innovate. I want you to bring in, um, some crazy high-end technology, but you're not able to figure out how to even effectively staff on that that basic level, or um, you don't even have Wi-Fi yet, right? There's a lot of uh, technical limitations. So I'm excited to bring the success that I've had at the Calgary Drop-In Centre to other places. What's a technologist to do to start the next decade off right and avoid the fate of Scrooge? Helen's got some thoughts for you. Ask how you and nonprofits can help each other. There's an Institute of Corporate Directors, ICD, that offers a nonprofit, a two day training course on nonprofit boards. And I would love to see, I think that there's lots of CFOs and CF, CEOs and um, great business leaders that are leading nonprofit governance boards, but there's not nearly enough IT acumen. So I would like to make a call to action to your listeners to, if you have, those uh, IT skills and interests, please bring them to a nonprofit board. That's it for this episode with enough innovation to light up a Christmas tree. If you'd like to hear more from Helen Weatherly Knight, you can find her at Helen W. Knight on Twitter. You know she knows her way around a keyboard. Join us next month for an episode with explorer Mario Rigby all about dreaming big and cross-pollinating continents, walking the length of Africa, and biking across Canada. If you'd like to leave us comments, reviews, or good cheer on this or other episodes, you can reach this podcast at Pollinata1 on Twitter or email us at crosspollinationpod at gmail.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our fellow members on the Alberta Podcast Network, the fourth line of weekly NHL hockey podcasts and repodcasting, recasting your favorite and not-so-favorite movies. Their hosts will be joining us as guests on an upcoming show early next year on Career Reinvention. Thanks for listening. Oh, my God.